0: You know, you you missed this one. And so you go give him the... It's not talking about that. Or if he breaks into your house, call the police. I tell him to stop stealing your stuff and leave your house. But when a person had no money or other possessions, the court would often require the finer judgment to be paid by clothing. The attitude of a kingdom citizen, one who is truly righteous, should be a willingness to surrender even one's coat, this extremely valuable outer garment, rather than cause offense or hard feelings with the adversary. Well, Why? As we will see for the purpose of seeing that that adversary would have an opportunity to come to know christ the court could not demand the cult but it could voluntarily be given to meet the required
1: debt hello and welcome again to grace merrill weekly which is a podcast ministry of grace community church located in downtown Maryville, tennessee the sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Riser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text.
0: Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 38 through 42. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. We continue on in the Sermon on the Mount and we have um, been taking some time here to understand what Jesus really means in some of these very difficult sayings and so we'll be again we'll again be in the middle of what it truly means to not take revenge and to not have a grudging heart as we as we consider really the the radical nature of what Jesus calls us to Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 38 you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Please be seated. The United States legal system seeks to ensure that every American who feels that they have been injured or victimized is able to seek justice through the court system. This is a noble and generally necessary protection, but in recent decades, as you are well aware, the United States has earned the nickname as the most litigious society, in part due to the major increases in lawsuits involving everything from hot spilled coffee to neighbor's disputes. In fact, Americans spend more in civil litigation than any other industrialized country, twice as much on litigation as they spend on new automobiles. Now, why the disparity? Why America and not other countries doing this? Well, one of the reasons is the incentives to sue, which Americans have plenty. You see, in the European legal system, the loser in a suit usually has to pay a large uh, portion of the winner's legal fees. In America, each party pays their own. So simply speaking, in America, there is nothing to lose. Now, as of 2006, and I was looking at some statistics even more recently, these hold to be about the same. There were over 1 million lawyers in the United States, according to the American Bar Association, more per capita than any other country. As the number of lawyers has increased, so has the number of civil claims. Right? They are up significantly over the past 10 years. 16 million civil suits were filed in the courts in 2002. About 15 million were filed last year. Frivolous lawsuits are, uh, alone are said to cost the United States about $200 billion a year, and all of these potentially unwarded claims have an effect on how am- Americans view the legal system. Trial lawyers earned an estimated $40 billion in lawsuit awards in 2002. Now, these are things that you're probably well aware of, at least to some degree, and as I was looking through, just considering the nature of our of, of the litigation that goes on out there, there's something called the Stella Awards. You might be aware of those. That's the award that is given, or the top 10 awards given to the most ridiculous lawsuits every year. Now, you need to be careful. A lot of those are urban legend. All right? So you read them, and they didn't really happen. Somebody made them up, and it sounds funny. and So they put it on the Internet, and then people not, that aren't doing good research, they just grab those and say, this was an actual lawsuit, when it isn't. However, the the, the lawsuit that started all of that certainly is a real lawsuit. It's called the Stellas. They're called the Stellas because one Stella Liebeck in 1992, you might remember this, she was 79 years old, she spilled a cup of none other than McDonald's coffee on her own lap. She burned herself, and a New Mexico jury awarded her $2.9 million in damages. That was later reduced to about $640,000. Oh, that's much better. And so really, coming, stemming out of that, kind of a, you know, then these the Stella Awards came. And so it, it just seems that more and more ridiculous lawsuits are being piled, one upon the other. One of the more recent ones, uh, and perhaps will strike home for some of you, there was a woman who sued Disney for $250 million, claiming that the mo- movie Frozen had actually stolen her life's story. If that were actually true, I'm not sure you would want to sue for that. But nonetheless, these are the kinds of things that go on. You might be thinking, well, that's ridiculous. How could that possibly happen? Before we're too quick to judge even some of these more ridiculous lawsuits, we need to remember, we need to consider the nature of our own hearts that when our rights are attacked, especially in relationship to our money, our security, or our possessions, we are quick to grow anxious and angry. And this is particularly true when someone uses the legal system, that which is supposed to determine what is right and fair in an unfair way. But as citizens of the kingdom... We do not need to be fearful or vengeful when our rights and our security are threatened, for we have a king who always does justice and who always provides for our needs. So, what we'll see this morning is that the kingdom citizen is able to exercise grace, humility, and generosity, even in the midst of legal oppression because he is confident in God's righteous judgment, present provision, and eternal reward. Again, the kingdom citizen is able to exercise grace, humility, and generosity, even in the midst of legal oppression, because he is confident in God's righteous judgment, present provision, and eternal reward. Perhaps we could say it this way, when you are fully satisfied with the righteous provision of God, you will be able to offer not only your shirt, but also your coat. Well, as we consider the nature of what is going on in Matthew chapter 5, remember that what Jesus is doing, he's first laid out what it means to be in the kingdom, as we began with the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, the heart attitudes necessary to enter into the kingdom that God provides. And then also what it means to to reflect the nature of the kingdom, and that is to live a life of righteousness. And he began by telling the the, the gathered audience that their righteousness needed to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. He began working through a whole series of of relationships of how the Pharisees dealt with personal righteousness in a legalistic external fashion, and Jesus bringing the proper corrective to their misunderstanding of the Old Testament law and Old Testament principles by fulfilling it, by, by, by filling out what we are supposed to do as New Testament believers. And we're in the middle of Jesus' teaching on personal justice. You remember that the, the Pharisees had, had taught uh, properly in one sense. They'd taken the Old Testament principle, an eye for an eye, which is really a just law, a merciful law, preventative law. It's not a law of retribution in the sense that uh, some some angry Old Testament God uh, gave a law that if someone takes out your eye, well, you better go get theirs. In fact, that's how the Pharisees taught it. They took this law, which was to prevent uh, charges or or prevent crimes from being uh, judged too harshly, he, this law was designed so that it would, it would bring the proper kind of punishment. Well, the Pharisees had perverted this from a law for society really to a law of personal revenge. They wanted to nurse personal grudges. They, they wanted to provide essentially incentive for personal revenge. And so Jesus says what? They, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, he says in verse 38, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. So in Jesus' teaching on personal justice, he's not undoing that Old Testament principle properly applied. It is still the basis of our own legal system, that the punishment matches the crime. But Jesus says in relationship to, to personal offenses most specifically, that you are not, that the foundational principle is that you are not to resist an evil person. And we talked about all that that does not mean, but remember that what it does mean is this. We don't return evil for evil. In any circumstance, regardless of what is happening, that we don't feel that it is right for us if we are harmed to return that with evil. And additionally, we don't take our own revenge. Even doing things that might not be directly sinful themselves, and yet are vindictive, are full out of a grudging heart, a heart that desires to exact our pound of flesh. So we don't return evil for evil or insult, or, or we don't, and we don't take our own revenge. But then Jesus gives four examples. Four very practical examples of how we not only, how we go beyond simply not returning evil for evil or not taking our own revenge to actually give a blessing, to actually do that which is good and right in light of our being treated as evil. And we looked at Romans chapter 12, which essentially gives the basic principle that we overcome evil with good. And two weeks ago, we looked at the first practical illustration that Jesus gives in verse 39 when he says, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him. And we talked about, again, what that does not mean because it has been so misused and misunderstood. It doesn't mean that we aren't allowed to pursue self-defense. It doesn't mean that there is no, we cannot have in our legal system capital punishment. It doesn't mean that we have to be pacifists, that we could never, uh, with, with the government, take up the sword against that, which is evil. But what it does mean is this that we are to be at peace with all men. That is when someone insults us, and that's what verse 39 is all about. It's not about a physical harm per se, the slapping on the cheek. Remember, that was a, that was a backhand across the cheek is what the text describes, the ultimate insult in Jewish society. And so we deal with personal insults by remaining at peace. Someone has broken peace with us through this insult. They've, they've attacked our character. They've, they've ruined our reputation. And instead of getting angry and vindictive, We choose to seek peace with them, turning the other cheek essentially to stay in the relationship, to be willing to take the insults that will certainly come and continue to pursue, as Romans 12 says, being at peace with all men, not having a heart of anger, frustration, or or enmity towards someone who has harmed us. But then even further than that, this idea, again, of turning the cheek is that you, you stay in the relationship to the extent that you try to bring resolution that you aren't running from the relationship the moment that you are insulted. Instead, you are staying there to bring peace, but to go further than that, to actually be a blessing. And if that person will not be at peace with you, the Bible says that you are to continue to give and not just go to the point of, well, all right, I'm okay in my heart towards you. And it's so easy for us to fool ourselves in that, isn't it? And so the Bible says you need to go beyond that to actually demonstrate that your heart is one of peace towards another person. You are to give your enemy what? Food and drink you are to seek ways to provide for the one who insulted you the one who is your enemy you are to overcome their evil with 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 proactive good and that's when you have been insulted to the deepest degree now i pray that you've been practicing that but there are very few things that are more challenging when we are when we are insulted when our when our when our character is assaulted well now we're going to move to the second practical application in verse 40 Jesus says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. So he moves from personal insult, essentially to legal insult or legal oppression. And of course, just with the statistics that I read, even in our own country, we understand that this is incredibly common. It may not have happened to you directly, but it might. And it probably has happened to someone that you know, where the legal system was used against them in some kind of vindictive or retributive way. That's essentially what's being described here someone is upset, they're angry, and so they use the legal system to get at someone else. And what's in view here really is a a very poor person who has almost nothing. They have no money to repay or to pay in the legal system, so they're being sued for what? Literally the shirt off their back. And that's often how it was done. If you couldn't pay with money, then you had to give your clothes. Right, And actually, this person is so poor, they don't have property that, that, can, be, that can be seized. It's actually, as in, as in a house or land, it actually has gone all the way to the, to the point that they have only their shirt. I mean, consider that. So here is, again, remember the, the, the context here is evil people, an evil person coming in some kind of vengeful way to actually take the shirt off the back of this person who, who they may have some real grievance against, but which they are pushing to the point of taking everything they own. And, he's, and Jesus says this, here's the principle. If they ask for your shirt, give your coat. So a kingdom citizen's response to legal oppression, the general principle is you give your coat. Now, the distinction is between the, the inner garment, which was, which was the shirt, and both of these would have been probably long tunics. They wouldn't have looked like the things that we wear. But nonetheless, you have an inner garment that was worn, and then you have a cloak or coat uh, on the outside of that that was generally used to keep a person warm. And if you were poor, it was also your blanket. That's usually how it worked. So the radical principle here is if you are being harmed in a legal way, someone coming against you to take essentially everything you own, the last article of clothing that you have, the shirt on your back, that the hard attitude that you are to have towards them is not only my coat, But you may also have my cloak and, or or my coat. And again, the reason that this is presented is because under Jewish law, Old Testament law, the court was not even allowed to take the coat. You could take the inner garment, all right, you could sue someone and they would have to give that if there was, if it was determined that there had been a true offense and the judgment went against that person, they could give the shirt. But you couldn't take the cloak, why, or the coat, the outer garment, because it was used to keep them warm. In fact, you could take it as collateral to hold while the suit was going forward, kind of kind of like a bond payment, kind of like bail. But every night you had to go and give that cloak back. Deuteronomy 24.10 says this, When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not enter his house to take his pledge. You shall remain outside. The man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. If he is a poor man, you shall not sleep with his pledge. When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it will be righteousness for you before the Lord our God. Here in view, a loan payment, but it was similarly regarded in legal matters. You could take the cloak for a period of time right, to hold, but you had to give it back each at the end of each day, and you couldn't take it overall, that you couldn't take that outer garment because it was to be used for, for their very warmth at night. And so here we have the picture of really the ultimate offense. You've got someone trying to take your shirt. They're not even allowed to take your coat, but your, your heart is, is, has is such a, a gracious desire in the midst of that that you would be willing to say, you know, you're trying to take everything from me. I'll give you the one thing you can't even take. Legally, you are pushing me to the edge. You're, you're taking me as far as you can possibly go legally, but I'm going to go further. I'll give you what you can't get. Can you imagine? Now that might not have happened to you, but I would say that in nearly every personal, even back to the insults and other things, that having that kind of attitude is is as we begin to view this this vindictive legal action that is being done, I think our hearts rise up to say, "How can this be? How could we? How would we be willing to do such a thing?" And and make no mistake, it's not only that the legal system was has been uh, misused or certainly overused in our case. Turn to or in our day, turn to Exodus eighteen the very beginning of the establishment of the nation of Israel, you begin to see, and and by the way, God set in place the legal system. I mean, it is right and good. We'll look at that in more detail. But right away, as the nation of Israel begins to form, as they're right before they go to Mount Sinai, and Moses is trying to oversee the people, in Exodus 18, we have a very fascinating story. Exodus 18, verse 12, Moses's father-in-law, Jethro, comes to visit him. And he took a burnt offering and sacrifices in Exodus 18, verse 12. And he came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses, the, uh, with Moses' father-in-law before God. It came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from morning till evening. Now, there's a lot of people, granted. All right, it's a couple million people. And yet what is already going on? Moses has set himself up as the judge. He's the one who's supposed to bring the, you know, bring the verdicts for each of the things going on. Jethro shows up, and there's Moses. All he does all day is what? Legal grievance after legal grievance after legal grievance, and he's trying to solve all of them. So from the very beginning, and this is the way people are, we always have grievances. We always have things that we hold against one another. Now, you remember what Moses' father-in-law says. He says, uh, he saw all verse 14 that he was doing for the people. He said, what is this thing you are doing for the people? When you sit alone as judge and all the people stand about you from morning till evening. Moses said to his father-in-law, the people come to me to inquire of God. They wasn't serving as a priest. They were coming to say, what would God do in this situation with this dispute that I have? Right? We need to know how God would render verdict on this. Verse 16, when they have a dispute, it comes to me. I judge between a man and his neighbor. I make known the statutes of God and his laws. And verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, this thing is not good. You're going to get worn out. So he establishes judges. He says, get 70 men that will help you do this thing. But I, I don't, no, it doesn't tell us further on in the text. If I had to guess, I would say that after, right after they got the 70 judges, they needed 70 more and probably 70 more. Because our ability to invent and to, and to take grievance is almost endless. Now, unfortunately, this also happens in the church. And we're going to do that's really, as Jesus is speaking here, he's speaking to his disciples. This is how, this is, this is how disciples are to act when they are harmed in these ways, when they harm each other in these ways. But believe me, this has been going on since the time that, that nations, that peoples, that relationships were established. Again, as we consider what it means that we would not only give our shirt, but also our cloak when it comes to a legal matter, remember that this is the attitude of the heart towards your persecutor, not a new law to obey. It isn't, doesn't mean that every time anyone asks of you, either legal or some other way, that you have to give them not only that item, but also an item of greater value. And we'll look at that in just a moment. John McArthur says Jesus is not speaking of robbery, in which a person tries to steal your clothes. You know, he breaks into your house, he starts taking stuff out of your jewelry are like, wait! You know, you, you missed this one. And so you go give him the... It, it's not talking about that. Or if he breaks into your house, call the police. Right, tell him to stop stealing your stuff and leave your house. Right, but when a person had no money or other possessions, the court would often require the finer judgment to be paid by clothing. The attitude of a kingdom citizen, one who is truly righteous, should be a willingness to surrender even one's coat, this extremely valuable outer garment, rather than cause offense or hard feelings with the adversary. Well, why? As we will see for the purpose of seeing that that adversary would have an opportunity to come to know Christ. The court could not demand the code, but it could voluntarily be given to meet the required debt. And this is it, precisely what Jesus says that we should be willing to do. Now, as with each of these, before we get uh, misunderstand this, let's look at what this does not mean. Because we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. We have to consider the nature of these principles. And again, this one has been much abused. Largely to say that no Christian at any time should ever enter into any kind of lawsuit. And that if someone does something harmful to you, you just stand back and go, well, that's fine. There may be times when that is appropriate, but it isn't every time. So what this does not mean, number two, is that Christians should never defend their legal rights in any way. Turn to Acts chapter 25. And again, we just look at scriptural examples of godly men who pursued various actions in scripture. And and we, we see the application of this principle in the life of the apostle Paul. So how did he deal with legal action against himself? And really, in, in the most extreme case, where he had to be really arrested by the Romans so he wouldn't be killed by the Jews, and then the Jews continued to bring legal action against him, trying to kill him. That was the idea. All right? they, they couldn't get at him under the Roman system, and so, or, or they couldn't get at, at Paul directly to kill him, because the Roman judicial system was protecting him, which is interesting, but so they tried to come legally to get him to a position where they could kill him. And in Acts chapter 25, Paul has Paul is in prison. He's in, in Caesarea. It says, after he spent no more than eight to 10 days among them, this is, in, this is 25 verse 6, he went down to Caesarea and on the next day he took his seat. This is speaking of Festus, who is the judge, essentially the ruler. He took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And after Paul arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem and they stood about him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. We know they brought a lawyer down. And so he comes down, he's got his whole case arranged to try to convict Paul in the eyes of the Roman authorities, most specifically so that they would remove the case back to Jerusalem. Why? So that on the way, he could be killed. So they're using these legal means to try to get at Paul directly. Verse 8, when Paul said in his own defense, I've committed no offense, either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar, the three major things that he was being uh, convicted of. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, again, notice how the legal system is working. It's always been this way. Our, Our legal system, perhaps, I think assuredly, the best in the entire world, and yet it is still swayed by these things. So he had this, you know, Festus doesn't, he wants to, in in a political sense, he wants to keep the Jews happy because the Jews are difficult. So anything that riles the Jews up, he wants to try to avoid. So he wants to do them a favor. He answered Paul and says, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? And so by our principle, what? Paul says, not only will I go to Jerusalem, I mean, I'll go pastor, I'll go to Jerusalem twice. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? And yeah, if people want to kill me when I go to Jerusalem, if all these charges are false, no problem. Well, no, look what, is it. look what Paul does. All right, verse 10. Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as, as you well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and I have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of these things is true, which, of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. So he didn't say, hey, you know, you can have my code as a word. You want my life? I'll give you two. You, know, you, you want, me to, want to put me in prison? I'll give you my life. It is not always appropriate to do that. These were false charges that were brought against him, which is, is somewhat indicated even in our passage in Matthew chapter 5. But there are times when it is right and good, and particularly when there is, is work to be done for the Lord. It wasn't time for Paul to die yet.
1: Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.